The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Prince Wine Store. Prince Wine Store bring wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world and they deliver Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au and enter the promo code MESS at the checkout to receive a special Don't Shoot the Messenger listener discount. I don't understand how the rivalry has become so... Toxic. Yeah, toxic. What we have is the Australian that loves to dump buckets on the age of the Sydney Morning Herald and, and the Sydney Morning Herald and the age often ignoring good stories in the Oz and it's it's pathetic and it, it harms good journalism and it, and it harms the public interest. There was a couple of months when I felt very one out so I know that feeling you're talking about and the sleepless nights etc. Your work not to piss in your pocket Carrie but I think challenging the establishment the footy establishment and taking on a club and such a celebrated figure as James Heard took huge courage. In the final episode when Margaret Thatcher resigned and goes to the Queen because she's being toppled by her treacherous ministers. I think it's one of the finest acting performances on a Netflix series I have seen all lockdown. And Fair that's enough. saying a lot because there's been a lot of them. She was a but child, Mummy. She was a child. And then she <laughs> continues. How could she have known? Is that your best Charles impression? You well, you're going to do no. this morning. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkins. Hi everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 153. I am Corrie Perkin here with my good friend Caroline Wilson and we have a crackerjack show today, Carol, with a very special guest who we might keep as a bit of a surprise until later on. What do you reckon? Well, yes, we've got plenty of housekeeping, so that, let's get that done first, okay. Corrie. Any, lovely to see you. Any apologies? I don't think I do. I should I? There do is I? A, there is a bit of an apology by way of a Facebook message from Julie Peck. Hello, Julie. Julie says your discussion of the crown overlooks the fact that nobody forced Diana to marry Charles, and this was her choice. Well, I I do think we sort of agree with that, Julie. She was a but, child, Mummy. She was a child, <laughs> and then she. Continues. How could she have known? Is that your best Charles impression you well, can, you're going to do no. this morning? Um, no, but uh, I mean, I he did this in the, in the Queen voice. Hello, you. <laughs> yes. Hello, you. Right, right. Oh, look, right. it was. I, there was so can I, many. Can I finish Julie's? Okay, can sorry, I finish Julie? Sorry, Julie. Julie go continues. On. I totally agree the behaviour from royal family members was appalling at times, and many outsiders at the time predicted the outcome was not going to good. You discuss the series as if every single minute is 100% fact. Just didn't think it was a balanced discussion. Well, mm. many, Corrie, believe, and we'll touch on it later. I'm not but sure about the balance. I'm not sure how we could be balanced whether we well, liked the show or not. It's an opinion business, Corrie. That's it. Look, <laughs> But look, thanks, Julie. We, are, we, we just love reading out... Um, no, well, Julie touches on... and brickbats. Julie touches on an important point. I mean, as you said last week or the week before, Charles's gang, his mob, have come out strongly in defence of him and are very angry at the way he's been portrayed. There was even a story about it on the ABC News the other night. British royal watchers saying it is ridiculous that Diana has come out as the heroine and Charles has come out as the evil bastard, which he really is. I mean, as the show goes on, he just, some of his behaviour is appalling and he is the grown-up in the story and they did throw her to the wolves and even, you know, my mother Julia, and we'll get her in before Christmas to talk about this, she believes that, you know, she's angry at, even though she's a big Queen fan, she's furious at what they did to Diana. And, you know, and, and because this story is coexisting now at the moment, along with the BBC situation, mm. look, she, it is a fascinating She did in use journos just the way everybody else did. But I still think that if, if you had to be black and white, I'm pointing the finger at Charles. 
and well, his family. Well, the family. It was a convenient and um, highly uh, highly successful matchmaking, dare I say, in terms of pedigree, breeding, backgrounds, all of that sort of thing. But she was a kid. As I said last week or the week before, that scene where she's skating around the palace just before the wedding, listening to Duran Duran on her earphones, just reminds us of what a kid she was and no one took her hand and helped her through it. Definitely some artistic licence. Oh, Definitely totally. Some but we do know that she was in love with him. We do know that. She said that she's, she is, Diana has said that she's on the record. Whatever saying, that means. <laughs> Sorry. Your impressions of the rules are shocking. We oh, have a lovely. I'm bad at all impressions. I feel as though there's many apologies from last week. We have Sorry, a lovely note anyway. from Simone in Perth. Thanks for your email, Simone. Caro and I really enjoyed reading it. And she says she hasn't seen her two Melbourne-based sons since February. They both both work in the health sector. Well, congratulations to them for keeping up the side. I reckon the Victorian health sector has done an amazing job, I say. That's me. But back to Simone. I too turned 60 this year in October, and my husband and I were supposed to join the laddies to celebrate in Byron Bay, but of course that didn't happen. I did celebrate here, though, with a couple, with another couple of friends who also turned 60, as we are living in an alternate universe at that point in Perth. We had a party for 100 people. Imagine. Well, happy birthday, Simone. We can do that now, none or of us, almost. None of us can imagine what that is like, that's for sure. Caro, so much housekeeping. We might have to defer to next week. Um, no more brickbats, though. We haven't been in trouble with anybody else, I don't think. I'm sure I had more apologies, but they've slipped my mind, Corrie. I would like to introduce our very special guest. It is with huge excitement today that I welcome, we welcome and introduce Nick McKenzie, award-winning journalist, multiple award-winning journalist. In fact, I think the Melbourne Press Club has said, Nick, that you have won more awards than any other. You are the most decorated journalist in the history of the Melbourne Press Club. Welcome to our podcast. Great to be in the defamation-free zone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't be so sure about that. Although we can press the stop and edit button. Look, Nick, um, so many reasons to have you on board today. But first of all, congratulations on your win last week with another yet another Walkley Award. It was such a fine um, story that you did exposing the Victorian state cabinet minister and Labor Party power broker Adam Somnurek. I had to write down his surname there. As you can see, I'm looking at his notes because I have a tendency to um, muck up the pronunciation of his name. But also you work on Crown Casino, the investigations, of course, into what has been happening with uh, our armed forces in Afghanistan, which has been such a huge story. You have um, you have a huge, for somebody, dare I say, who is so young in the journalism sphere, you have a CV that reads like a Bob Woodward who is kind of rising 80. It is extraordinary. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you feeling after your Walkley Award winning? There was no ceremony, so you couldn't go to the bar and shout everyone a drink this year. That's not, a, that's not a bad thing. I've seen Nick after awards nights before. <laughs> <laughs> remember that. Remember that. It was, it, a, a Zoom, it was a Zoom meeting <laughs> or, or gathering? It was. It's a, it could be a blessing in disguise to sometimes avoid having to go to um, journalism events. But no, it's, listen, I'm stoked to have won that, but it's more than the award to see the, the war crime stuff come out last week. Uh, in fact, a few things happened last week that was validation for stories that we'd done over a couple of years and faced significant pressures, lawsuits. Uh, in fact, I think all of them have led to to um, law threats or lawsuits in one way or another and huge sort of corporate blowback, uh, some some public blowback. It was very, very hard to take on war crimes because um, you know, many people in the public don't want to hear about it. So to have that actually validated 
to have our whistleblowers who are taking huge risk would convince them to come on board, to have that that sort of payoff where it was worth coming out, it was worth speaking to us because now you have, in the case of war crimes, the Supreme Court judge making these very, very amazing findings, the Chief of the Defence Force backing them up. That was the real um, feeling of... Uh, I mean, vindication is the wrong word because there's still a long, long battle ahead, but um, you know, quite satisfaction and you know, to see those efforts of those brave people pay off was was great. And on a smaller scale, but still a really important story, I remember the pressure you faced when you broke the Crown story about a large amount of allegations, including money laundering. And I remember talking to people closely involved with Crown and on the board and saying they were huge fans of yours, but you were just wrong on this one. And the, and there was a lot of pressure at when that was broken, that story, and the denials were horrific. And then the turnaround, Nick, in the last two weeks, which of course, and as we sit here today, I think the New South Wales government have put off awarding the licence to Crown for this new casino. Um, that to me was, although although a, not as significant a story, that's about as much pressure apart from the Ben Robert Smith that I've seen you put under. I think it's, I think it is enormous vindication. Yeah, I mean, that, I actually remember you calling me and saying that Demetrio was slagging me off. <laughs> and uh, at that, at Sorry, that, Andrew. <laughs> and at that time, <laughs> when that was happening, it was... He wasn't slagging you off. He was an enormous admirer of yours, but he said he's, got, he's wrong on this one. <clears throat> well, I mean, that was, so, that was so convinced that we were wrong that the Crown Board placed these, these full-page ads in, in News Limited. They tried to sell them to Fairfax or Nine, and we refused to run them. And it was, they excoriated the journalism. I mean, it was, th- those ads were just attacking every part of the story we'd put to air on 60 Minutes and published in The Age. Uh, they attacked our whistleblower. It, it was extremely nasty stuff. And when... when that was horrific. Was the, the woman whistleblower that's right, who was interviewed yeah. on the ABC recently. That, what a, what, that was shocking what they did to her. Yeah, a, a 30-something-year-old a Chinese woman who was, I think she was earning about 45 grand a year getting paid by, as, as to work for, for Crown. And as a result of being exposed to Crown's uh, illegal conduct in China, she was arrested, um, thrown briefly into a jail, was risking a far greater jail sentence, and now is a criminal in China. That follows around for the rest of her life. She was a whistleblower in our story. And then Crown placed her, named her in the ad, accused her of being a, a money-grubbing uh, person lacking all integrity, suggested falsely that she'd only gone on 60 minutes because we'd paid her. We didn't pay her a dime. It was really, really revolting. But when the, when a board of a company does that, the first thing you think of, because you're human, is, geez, maybe I have stuffed up. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing here. They'd come out with such great confidence. And it was terrifying because it's not just me thinking that. It's obviously my bosses at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and the board of nine is saying, what have you done? What, what trouble have you got us into? So you've got to actually go back to your facts. And I remember you know, not being able to sleep that night. In fact, I'd gone out for a, a, a dinner with my producer to not to celebrate the program, but to sort of have a quiet, you know, unwind. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't concentrate over dinner, just checking my phone and looking at the statement and, and, you know, really, really, really anxious. So a year or so has passed to have every allegation we made in that program held up by this in public inquiry, to have people like Andrew Demetriou, who were going around town, they were slagging us off, absolutely, to have Andrew appear before that inquiry uh, and to have him excoriated this time around. To have He I damaged mean, his brand, didn't he? Oh, he was appalling. Yeah. Uh, he came across with great hubris. Uh, he came across as if he, well, he hadn't prepared properly and it showed that he didn't know that the basic things about being a director of a large company, it was embarrassing for him. 
Uh, and, um, you know, that was very, I don't want to sound churlish, but that was satisfying because of the efforts people like him and others had gone to to undermine our work and to, uh, to undermine the whistleblowers who'd helped us. And speaking of big, strong, super charming, powerful individuals, Brendan and I sat at an Anzac Day lunch uh, with Ben Robert Smith and his former wife a few years ago. And, you know, he was wearing his medals and the v- we're talking about being a VC winner and the small parties they hold because there are so few of them. And well, obviously he seemed incredibly charming. Anzac Day, Collingwood, Essendon game, I'm talking about lunch. And then um, the the pressure he put on you and, the, you know, the backing of Kerry Stokes to fight his legal battles, that was extraordinary as well. And um, it just baffles me, Corrie and Nick, as to – he must have known – about some of this stuff, that, that it would come out. Why would you fight so hard? Is it hubris? Is it just a refusal to think that all your life no one's ever told you you were wrong? I mean, I'm thinking of James Heard in my experience, but is that part of it, do you think? Well, that court case is still going on, and so we've got to be careful what okay. we say. But I think it's, it's um, I mean, someone who had been a long-time observer of Ben Robert Smith said to me that in his own mind he's always been a winner. And so for him to be challenged and for him to have allegations, which are now very clearly very, very credible allegations as of last week, uh, Ed, no, for someone to dare challenge him, I think was was one thing that set him off. But obviously having Kerry Stokes's money behind him gave him lots of power, lots of influence. Because he runs Channel 7 in, in Brisbane. And Corey, you and I, you know, we talk a lot about you know, will, will, can journalism survive and will, these, will newspapers and media organisations continue to fund these big investigations? And it makes us worried. And then watching Media Watch this week, and I think it was Dan Oakes was interviewed and he said how horrified he was. He didn't want to make too big a deal of it, but how even media didn't support the initial stories about what was going on in Afghanistan. I think the, the, the thing that um, often perplexes me more recently about these sorts of stories that people such as you uh, investigate, Nick, is the lack of backing these days from the profession. And it is a bit of a dog-eat-dog, you know, if Channel 9 has the story, Channel 7 might be agitated, or if um, The Age has the story, the entire brunt of News Limited seems to come down, rain down on the parade. And it used to be in the old days, and I talk about when Carol and I were younger, I talk about when my dad was editor of The Age and started up the original Insight team, it was a gentleman's agreement that if somebody broke a story and you were the editor around the corner who didn't have the story, you'd say, well, damn it, you know, but I mean, how many times did Harry Gordon used to send a letter to my dad saying congratulations on the front page scoop or vice versa? But then they would follow it up. They knew that there was a story there, so they would follow it up. It's almost like the other news organisations don't follow it up, but then rain on the parade and then call it, call it out and say it's wrong, it's wrong, because they're jealous or miffed that they never got the story themselves. I don't understand the, how the rivalry has become so... Um, toxic. Yeah, toxic. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a particularly Australian thing. I mean, America, hyper-partisan media, sure. But you do see the New York Times referencing the Washington Post and vice versa all the time and praising each other when they do good work and, more importantly, following up stories. So breaking one paper breaks something, another one breaks something else. Now, I'm not saying we're the, wherever the standard of the New York Times or Washington Post, I wish. Uh, but what we have is the Australian that loves to dump buckets on the age of the Sydney Morning Herald and, and the Sydney Morning Herald and the age often uh, ignoring good stories in the Oz and it's it's pathetic and it, it harms good journalism and it, and it harms the public interest. But I will say this, 
one of the one of the, the worst things about the Ben Robert Smith story was for me the way that one journalist in particular at the Australian, uh, who by all accounts is an okay guy, but decided to run Ben Robert Smith's PR and did so for years. And I think that really empowered Ben Robert Smith and Kerry Stokes. They felt like they had the national newspaper on side. But then almost overnight, that journalist left. And the defence reporter, Ben Packham, started digging, doing his own investigations from the Australian. Ellen Wynette from the Herald Sun, a cracking journalist, began to do her own investigations. And I was picking up the Herald Sun and the Australian, finding out fresh things about Ben Robert Smith or about the war crimes that I, I did. And it was, yeah, okay, you get a bit pissed off because your competitor's got the jump on you. But also it's a sense of, well, this is, this is the media working as it should. So when that happens, it's terrific. And so there's those great parts of the Aussie media and journalism that do, that do chase the story and follow the evidence wherever it leads. I would say this as well about people bagging or saying investigative journalism is dead. Those people who tend to say that tend to be journalists Externos yep. who think the the glory days was when I was a journalist. No one's done anything as good since since I had my round. Yet when I look at at the young journalists out there, they're terrific, and some of the best investigative work's being done across the papers, across the uh, mm. commercial outlets now than ever before. We talked about this briefly uh, a few weeks ago, Nick, in relation to the American election, but how the American media has covered the, the past four years of Trump, and uh, like, there is a plethora. A plethora of stories of of uncovering stuff about that administration. I have never seen the Washington uh, press unit and the New York Times as well work so intently on uh, just bringing the truth to the fore, shining the light in the dark corners so brilliantly. And yet there are still people, I heard Bob Woodward interviewed when his book came out a couple of months ago, Rage, and he was saying how you know journalism back then was better. I, I just don't know how people can do that with the resources that we have. And also, don't you think, Nick, that as long as there are people who want to tell their story, good, honest people who work in the public service or the armed forces or Crown Casino or wherever they may work, they, they feel the need to come forward. Well, that's, I want to ask you about Dusty because you've, you've mentioned him a couple of times now. Can you just briefly tell us... Who he are, is? We, are we talking about the Richmond Football Club? No. Thankfully <laughs> <laughs> not. <laughs> um, and I'd love to – I hope we talk, get you to our, There's our, a lot of Richmond football talk <laughs> happens on, around yeah. this table. Dare we mention the Asada doping scandal? Perhaps we'll get to that. <laughs> we uh, could. Uh, we Dusty could. Miller was a, is an SAS – or was an SAS medic, uh, and he was a whistleblower who was, – was the only whistleblower who – so we got quite a few whistleblowers in the SAS who, were, who talked to us who were, who were serving all former SAS members. Uh, and for good reason, they don't put their heads up. If, if they're serving, they'd be, they'd be charged criminally for talking to journalists. But Dusty was one of the very – well, the only who said, I'm happy to tell my story. And so I got to know Dusty. He was an SAS medic, so he deployed with the OCS to Afghanistan. He was their medic, but, but people forget as well or may not know. And carried, obviously carried it. He was a he, but he's a soldier. He's fighting. He's he's engaging in combat. He had to to use his weapon many times, and he's a specialist, so if, medic. So if someone gets injured, he's there to help them. So he put himself in harm's way, and saw things that he that were appalling. There was an injured man who was put in his care. Uh, a bloke had been shot through the thigh. Another soldier took this man away and allegedly stomped him to death. This is a, a an Afghan farmer, and Dusty was so cut up about that. It just stayed with him for years. I got to know him, actually took him for a, a bowl of pasta in South Yarra maybe three years ago. He was still a serving army uh, senior soldier at that time. Um, and he was very careful because he couldn't, you know, he didn't want to break the, the army rules. But I could tell he had this thing in him uh, that he wanted to share, but that would take time. And, and that the moment we met, 
when started just talking about life and family, we had a connection, a real connection. It became a not not a mate then, but I could feel like we we would become friends. And you know, I'd, I'd speak to Dusty once a fortnight. He's uh, he's become a real friend. I've been part of his journey, and it's been it's just been one of the biggest privileges I think as a journalist to not just tell his story to the public. And I think his story was massive in changing people's perception about why it was important to deal with war crimes. Uh, but to get to know someone so well and to, to feel like you're part of their journey uh, and to feel like he's part of my my journey as well was, was and it's a genuine, you don't feel like you're using someone, you feel like it's a genuine collaboration and that's the best, you know, it's been a, it's a, been a massive, massive privilege. Uh, when when Dusty's landed in the psych ward, I've gone and, and seen him and I've, so I've seen him at his absolute worst, but to feel like I could actually just help him a little bit and to, to help him get his confidence back and to remind him what a what a great person he is and what a brave person he is was was me doing my small part for for him, while he did his massive part for me and, and our audiences and telling us what, what really went on sometimes in Afghanistan. And that's what the bean counters don't understand when they're looking at uh, at newspapers and and television networks and saying we have to cut 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 the editorial budget. They don't they don't take into account all of the extra hours that you do to nurture relationships and have conversations. I mean, Caro, you know, particularly during the football season and particularly when you're a chief football writer, your phone runs off the hook the whole time, often with you just having conversations with people, nurturing a contact or hearing them out if they've There's got There's a something. lot of off-season too, There's... Corrie, making up, <laughs> making up for... <laughs> yes, look, all I'm that sorry stuff I wrote I... that. <laughs> look, at the t- no, well, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm always back what I say, but, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, if you bag someone, you should catch up with them and of explain course. why you bag them. But this is why it's so hard for, for people to acknowledge the cost of... Because the cost is... is uh, I mean... Good stories, big stories require huge investment of time and energy, but also talent and experience such as the reporter's concerned. You can't put, you know, three juniors into an investigative unit without a mentor and hope that they're going to sort of carry you through. Nick, when you were a young journalist, what took you into this area? Why not something easy like footy reporting or or the arts? Uh, I mean, I, I was drawn to this um, investigative reporting from day dot. As, a, as even as a cadet, I was uh, um, pretty unmanageable. But I think I just have that personality that uh, likes that the, the digging. I like. I love the, the sort of the hunt. Um, I, re- I really like people as well. It's a great job when you, if you like people, you get to know. Yeah, different... it's a privilege, isn't it? Really, oh, doing meeting fun. people and it's having. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, I would say this though, like every sort of journalism is investigative journalism. We're all doing, it's it's, it's a fancy title, from the arts journal to the sports journal to the political reporter, we're all investigating a certain area. We're all basically applying the same tradecraft, which is people, getting to know people. Uh, you can have all the sort of documents in the world. You can you can be great at sitting in freedom of information requests, crunching data, but without a person in the middle of a story, you you, you don't have much of a story. Um, so just the, yeah, that, that digging plus the, the human source cultivation uh, and wanting to wanting to know more, being fairly relentless, I think as well. It's just it's part of my my personality, uh, and um, yeah, I just don't let things go. I just I just uh, for whatever reason just um, just love that sort of pushing, pushing, driving, 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 driving. And uh, I think where where perhaps where some people get bored with something, um, I, I look at it as a challenge and. Uh, Probably pretty hyper competitive. Maybe that's a result of being a, a twin, 
a twin to a Jewish uh, Jewish mother. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, I'm in no way comparing any of those stories to the Essendon drug scandal, but oh no, you it should. Was, it no, was. You it, should. It, you it's won how lots I, of awards. For well, that. it's how I got to know Nick. We sort of really. I didn't really know you before that, except to say hello, and um, it, it is a very lonely place. And early on, before we started. Um, Collaborating, I remember, and I'm not again comparing what happened with Ben Robert Smith to James Heard, but there was another newspaper, the Herald Sun, who became his PR team, and Mark Robinson in particular, who I'm not bagging as a journo, but he totally believed James Heard, and James Heard was briefing him day in, day out. And so it was a similar feeling, and Melbourne and James Heard, you know, there's not many bigger sort of stories in, in this town. And I must say, I did walk a little taller when you and Richard. Baker started breaking some of the really meaty drug stuff and getting to know some of the people who were involved in in the actual substances that were being taken. I mean, it certainly made my job, it took a lot of pressure off me to know that, you know, because there, there was a couple of months when I felt very one out, very one out. And I, so I know that feeling you're talking about and the sleepless nights, et cetera. Yeah, but I think, I mean, your work, not to piss in your pocket, Caro, but I think challenging the establishment, the footy establishment, and taking on a club and such a celebrated figure as James Heard took took huge courage. For me, the big takeaway from that story was, number one, that we had this great team, um, all these different journos with different skills, sports reporters, uh, us investigative reporters, crime reporters. It was such a Melbourne story. That story can best be told. There was a, an anti-aging clinic, whatever the hell that is, in, in South Yarra, and there was this... Um, a well-spoken doctor there who was treating the Essendon. He was sourcing his uh, drugs from uh, from organised crime figures, including a bloke supplying Toby Mitchell of the Banditos. Uh, and he was also <laughs> treating sort of, you know, the well, well-heeled of Melbourne, a classic Melbourne story of lawyers, crooks, sports stars and business people. What are you missing are the guns? <laughs> yeah, well, there's probably a few guns in there as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that was that was that that was the scandal. There was all these different um, different elements: uh, crime, uh, ego, uh, obviously sports. Uh, uh, what an extraordinary story that was! And of course, the Herald Sun, you know, for some for some period, riding shotgun with James Heard. I think. I mean, they still they still are clinging on to that story even now. I think. Yeah. Well, no, that's right. Uh, well, look, Nick, our um, our colleagues uh, in the podcast world, Damian Barrett and Craig Hutchinson, called you the winks of Australian journalism. And I would just like to say on behalf of um, my family that the Graham Perkin Award for Journalist of the Year, which I think probably is the finest award because it is just so utterly impartial, both of you here have won this award. And if my dad was here and putting together uh, a new newspaper, you two would be the first two I reckon he would be hiring. So I'm really honoured to be here with, well, I'm here with Cara all the time. I can't get rid of her, but it's really great to have you here. And I'm so pleased you're going to stay and join our podcast for some of the uh, the less um, important matters in our life, such as... Eddie Maguire. <laughs> such as Eddie Maguire. No, Eddie Maguire. Just a... give us a quick couple of minutes, Cara, on what's yeah. the latest. Well, well, well just a, such a... He, he is a massive Melbourne story and he's done such... You know, he clearly has done some wonderful things for that football club. He's made it back into the Collingwood it was when I was a kid. However, I've never seen him under so much pressure as president. I've put him under pressure in the past. My view is that he's always, he should have had a succession plan from a long time ago. All good clubs should. And he never really has, certainly not in terms of president, certainly in coaching, but that 
didn't really work out the way he hoped. But I've never seen the Herald Sun turn on Eddie the way they have in the last few weeks, Nick. Have you... They're, they're really they're actively campaigning against him now, which they never have in the past. I mean, my, I never forget my first time I met Eddie. I was a cadet journalist, a nobody, and he um, saw this young bloke wearing a, a big suit and said at a press conference, pulled me aside, Nick, what's your name? I said, I'm Nick McKenna. I'm a bit nervous, pleased to meet you. Shook my hand, massive grin. I thought, wow, this guy's great. So his ability to cultivate the press has been the secret to lots of his success. Yes. And now but to, also to in, see in... the Herald Sun, that's, that's amazing. But, I mean, the, Eddie's not a guy who ste- steps aside lightly. He's no. a king who won't, who won't take off his crown. And, uh, I, I, you know, he's, he's uh, I can't um, There'll be some. There'll be some far more pressure for, to needs to be applied for him to to step. To, well, well, there of needs his own to volition, be. Of course, yeah, there needs to be an alternative. And Craig Kelly is a name you always hear, and obviously that's complicated because he's a big. He he is still very much involved with the AFL. He's in partnership with the AFL. His company has been a huge part of. It manages so many coaches and players, including Nathan Buckley. The Nathan Buckley, you know, is clear. He's on the nose as well at Carol, the moment with some of his players. Colli- I think. I don't think Collingwood should. Uh, it, it's all vested interest. I think Collingwood, if they're looking to nurture new board people and a new president, they should be looking at people who haven't really no ties with with. But Eddie's, Eddie's become Collingwood, so I don't think you can extricate anyone involved in this story. They, they did a big review a few years ago that saw the CEO removed, Gary Pert, saw Nathan Buckley re- reinstated and recontracted. And yet Peter Murphy, who ran this review, tried to introduce term limit, limits for presidents like Richmond has done, like Hawthorne has done. Like Geelong has done, but um, like all good boards should didn't do. get that one. Didn't get that one over the line. So yeah, it's, it's that's going to be a fascinating watch over the next few months. So guys, we're going to move on to the cocktail cabinet now. That sound of that jiggling glasses, <laughs> which oh, is honestly. me with my cocktail. Are we in Palmsbridge? My time, Brandy Snap, Alexander. Um, Mick, we have this segment called The Cocktail Cabinet, which is brought to us by our wonderful new supporters of the podcast, Prince Wine Store. Bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world, visit princewinestore.com.au and Caro and I can vouch for the best wine in the world because we had a bottle last week. Tony's not with us today, but he sent to us a beautiful bottle of rosé and um, myself, me, myself, I, not a rosé fan, Nick, at all. I think it's often a bit like fairy cordial. but Waste um, of time is, I think, what you said. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> Tony's face was a bit crumpled when I said that. But anyway, we were Carol and I were having a game of Scrabble on a Friday night. Um, I know you look up to her and you think she's a goddess, but she didn't win Scrabble. No, but I didn't come last either, Corrie. Um, <laughs> so Tony had given us a bottle for our uh, our Scrabble game, Chateau de Roe Rosé, and uh, we pulled it out of the fridge and we had a glass midway through the game. And what did you think, Kaz? I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was, you know, it was pale, it was dry. I absolutely love Rosé. I can't understand why people don't all love it. I find that... A lot of people who only drink red wine and are not mad on white wine are happy to have rosé as a substitute. That's where it comes in for a lot of people. I'm not really a red wine drinker much, but I just think a crisp, dry rosé on a hot afternoon or evening, as well, it was actually late afternoon, Corrie, when we were playing Scrabble, it was an evening, but... um, 
I thought it was a fabulous drop. I it's really actually, did. It was actually it was, 10 to 5, I think, when we put the I mean, <laughs> and Australia are putting out some really nice versions of, you know, pale rosés. Are we allowed to call them rosé in Australia? Well, yeah, we are. We are. It's not like champagne. It's a wine variety. Yes, it's not like champagne. Sorry. But um, this was a, was this a Provence version? I gather so, yeah. but I'm waiting for Tony's, um, I'm waiting for the notes to come through. But when he comes back and sees us in a couple of weeks, we might grill him a bit more on this it was, because I'm sure he'll have a it special offer. It was perfect and it was well priced and I'm definitely going to recommend it. Are you a rosé man, Nick? I like any free booze. Um, <laughs> it's I'm just loving this uh, This one. Sponsorship does deliver a, a great rap. Um. Well, do you know what I did yesterday? I have I have organised, and this is not an, an in thing, and I'm not expecting a deal or anything like that, but I have actually ordered a crate of summer or pre-summer, pre-Christmas, I suppose, grog from Prince Wine Store. So easy to do. They send you a lovely email back, invite you into the fold. They have all the, these events like wine tastings um, on, well, I imagine they're Zoom at the moment. But, um, yeah, it's pretty um, It's pretty good having a wine sponsor for the podcast. It's very appropriate for us. It, it actually... We're not alcoholics. It segues <laughs> on to my crush of the week, if okay. you don't mind, well, which is... Um, Thank you, Prince Weinstall. Thank you, Prince Weinstall. We'll talk more about you in a moment. Um, Corrie will give the links again when we come towards the end of the show. But Melbourne Food and Wine, Corrie, has had a shocker of a year, like so many people have had shockers of a year, trying to run businesses that involve people getting together in large groups. And I've always loved the initiative of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. They do it so well. And I, lo- I also love people who, to- during this pandemic, who haven't, and I know it's been easy to complain and some people have every right to complain, particularly people um, who don't have a lot of money, living in small apartments with a lot of kids at home, people in abusive relationships, etc. But, you know, when some wealthy restaurateurs are in the paper day in, day out, you know, or just anyone complaining. This sounds like a grumpy rather than a crush. No, Melbourne Food and Wine have been fantastic. And it was actually a really good article. I think it was in the Herald Sun earlier this week. What they're going to do on New Year's Eve, street feasts. Because there are going to be fireworks and because there's a lot of concern about getting people together in big numbers, they've opened up this enormous collective. So they're opening up with alleyways, with the main streets of Melbourne. You can join in now to to book dinner at one of your favourite alley Oh, and no cars, you mean? No, no cars on the road? No, but they're all offering deals. There are deals at restaurants all through town and all through the city. And I think you just, well, I just looked up Melbourne Food and Wine when I read this article in the Herald Sun, but you might get hot dogs at Hee or you might um, have a Japanese theme, or there, there's a thousand different laneway takeovers that are going on on New Year's Eve. And I reckon their initiative since they found out they couldn't have a food and wine festival has been really good. So that's my positive comment of the week. Good. Thank you for that. Book, screen and food now, BSF. Okay. Are you able to give us a recommendation in a minute of something you've liked on Netflix or Stan or Prime? Because I'm going to give Corrie some rapid fire book questions because people are starting to do their Christmas shopping. Correct, they are. And the bookshop's never been so busy in 100 days. It's And I'm starting to read again because the footy season's over. So I want some good answers, and these will also be on our show notes. Well, some of these answers you may have already read. That's okay. That's okay. They're presents then. Yeah. Best thriller or crime? I would say, well, for the year, uh, I would say American Dirt. And uh, at the moment, I would suggest The Survivors, perhaps by Jane Harper. I agree, even though there are a lot of characters in it, I'm doing an event with her this week with the Melbourne Press Club, Nick. (laughs) Love that book. You knew that, of course, because you're the president. (laughs) Best historic. The Burning Island by Jock Sarong. Oh, 
Fantastic. But you have to read preservation first. Best beach read, as in, you know, light and fluffy? Oh, uh, I think probably um, The Weekend by Charlotte Wood, which actually came out last year. A lot of people still haven't read it. But I think it's probably a good one for the beach, yeah. Put me off being an old woman. I tell you what, that book. (laughs) What a bunch of miserable old... They were anyway. I wasn't mad on that. I wasn't mad on it actually. But no, it is. It certainly is a beach read, and some people loved it. Best award winner, Hamnet, won the Woman's Prize for Fiction. Should have won. Should have. Should have been nominated yeah. for a Booker Caro. Absolute scandal. Best Aussie book this year, Corrie. Uh The Yield by Tara June Winch won the Miles Franklin. Worthy, worthy, worthy winner. Have you read that yet? No, I haven't, but I would say Bluebird. I love that by Malcolm Knox. Absolutely loved mm. it. Anyway, okay. um, best cookbook? A Year of Simple Family Food by Julia Bazutul Nishimura. Oh, not just Dad Lemon, I thought you might say. No, I, I think for the year round. So as you know, I received an advanced copy of this before the second lockdown. So I think she saved my life. And it is, it's just an all-round great book. Best bio? Barack Obama. A promised land. Yeah, it's everywhere at the moment, isn't it? Um, and best golden oldie. Well, it's because she's a golden oldie, not so much the book itself. Lady in Waiting by Anglin Connor. Oh, I've sold so many copies. Everybody, my life in Mustique with Colin. Everybody Starbucks. who has read this book absolutely loved it. I must. Lady and Coke or Cook, Cook, I think is how she pronounces it. The daughter of the fifth Earl of Leicester, who married uh, Lord Glen Connor, who was Colin Tennant, who was a bit of a mad one. In its first three months, it sold 180,000 copies in the UK alone. It has sold thousands of copies in Australia. Now, I know we were going to talk about The Crown, but I think that is going to take up a bit more time. So can you just briefly tell us about this show you've been raving about on SBS? Briarpatch, SBS On Demand. It's, a, uh, I think, an eight-part series. I'm not going to go into it in huge detail because I know time is on the wing, but it's... Um, it is a. It's set in contemporary times, and it's the story of um, a really, really gorgeous actress uh, um, whose name is Allegra Dill, and she works for um, the government in Washington. But she returns to her border town home in San Bonifacio in Texas. Small town, dust, tumbleweeds, cacti men with drinking problems, the whole bit. It really is a great series. I highly recommend it. And there's a touch of the Quentin Tarantinos about it too in terms of the violence and stuff. So highly recommend Briar Patch. And Carol, you have a recipe. But Nick was Oh, Nick, yeah. What's your tip for a Netflix or a Stan? Listen, I've been loving uh, on Stan Comey. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it. It's fantastic. It's especially the performance... The actor gives it the Trump actor is just, I mean, it's a bit over the top, but it, it does capture Trump extremely well. Also love the, uh, this is one for um, Star Wars fans, Mandalorian. I've, I've, it's the first show I'm watching with my six-year-old son. I think I like it more than him. It's a, it's a series. It's, it's, if you like Star Wars and if you have a, a child, it's, it's good fun, I think. Mandalorian. Mandalorian for dads. And the other one is called The Comey Rule. The Comey Rule. I agree with you. Yeah, Brendan, that's right. Brendan, We've spoken Brendan, about Yeah, this. Brendan Gleeson, I think he's a Scottish actor or no, Irish actor who plays Trump. He's brilliant, isn't he? And we've talked about it before on this podcast. He plays it subtle. He doesn't joke up the Trump. He plays it in a subtle kind of way and it's even more menacing. You can't look away. No. And his face is sort of puffed and he's sweaty and horrible and uh, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's changed in four years. My recipe, very quickly, yet another, has been touched on before, yet another from yet another version of really good roast chicken. 
And this is from one of your faves, Corrie, um, Sky McAlpine, mm-hmm. who um, has a, she's got a cookbook out as well. But this is the easiest, simplest. Anna from the op shop put me onto it. She touched on it, but hasn't really gone into detail. The trick of this roast chicken is that you cook it on top of the potatoes. Like you thinly slice a whole lot of potatoes mm-hmm. and you sit the chicken on top and basically you stuff um, some rosemary and a lemon inside the chicken, but you prick the lemon all the way over with a fork. So it sort of sweats inside the chicken. I've done that before with roast chicken. In fact, I think Jeff Slattery told us about that years ago, pop a lemon in the guts of the chicken. Carol, even I know that, and that's a, that's it's not that big a deal <laughs> recipe. If I know, put, it on the, put it some, some potatoes in below, lemon in there. But are I must you, say, but the do you cook it all over? Yeah, yeah. The and ro- the rosemary inside as well? Of course, yeah. Are you a cook? I'm not a, I'm not a cook. But you know but this one. The roast chook's gone a long way. My mum used to baste it in Vegemite. Whack it in the uh, whack it in the oven. That was it was well, a, it was a dry salty uh, dish. Quite enjoyed it back in the anything, day. Oh anything God. with salt. Anything with salt. <laughs> well, it, before you've all just interrupted, just let me finish. All right. The trick is, it's not on top of. They're really thinly sliced potatoes. Like they recommend a mandolin, but you don't worry about that. So half the potatoes, Corrie, are underneath, and half are on the outside. So some of them are all soft and squishy and covered in beautiful chicken juice, and the other half are all crispy and yummy. And there's garlic in there as well. The recipe will be on the show notes. It is absolute. And the other um, thing is that you actually roast the Christ out of it really quickly. It's really, really yummy. Anyway, we've all got versions. That's, but it. that's it. Now, Nick, we want to ask you: Are you grumpy this week? I'm always a bit grumpy. <laughs> John One part grumpy, two parts uh, optimistic. We did originally think we should call this show "Grumpy Old Women," but I think it was actually taken. One of no one, and one of our friends said that it wouldn't be good for our brand. <laughs> uh, this week, actually, the amount of texts I've drafted, uh, tweets I've drafted, but not, but not tweeted, uh, that that is indicative of my of my grumpiness. <laughs> Dear asshole, send this to the to the world. No, better not send that. In fact, my boss has said to me, before you tweet again, you must run your tweets past me. That's uh, been uh, Now, believe it or not, Nick, we have another sponsor, and that is Click for Vic. So you can visit Victoria. Just um, visit Victoria is a wonderful sponsor. It's all about buying local, embracing Victorian business, and exploring some new products and experiences to enjoy at home, or as the perfect gifts for the festive season. So um, we want to say hello. Thanks to Click for Vic from Cape Merchants, Corrie. We do. Go ahead. Cape Merchants have joined the Click for Vic and they sent us a message saying they loved episode 152 and they said we couldn't be happier to be listed on Click for Vic's website. Such a brilliant initiative and perfect match for Don't Shoot the Messenger and your potty fans. We agree. I've had quite a bit of feedback from people who have been accessing Click for Vic. They didn't even know it existed. It's not just, Caro, a you know post-COVID kind of recovery site to make you feel good, but also in terms of the bushfires earlier this year, so many of the bushfire-affected areas, particularly on the coast, have their businesses, their restaurants and cafes, their places to stay on Click for Vic. So everybody jump on board with visitvictoria.com and then you go click for Vic and just follow, or you can just follow the links in our show notes. And Cape Merchants is a wonderful shop on the Mornington Peninsula. In Sorrento. And we also just, we urge anybody who has a good tip uh, with a Victorian recommendation, just let us know. Feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Now, six quick questions. Was Nick going to give us a recommendation, favourite spot in Victoria that you're dying to visit? Now you're allowed to. Just what through in He's my. He's too busy. No, well, t- talking of great stores down the peninsula, Peninsula Wholesale Meats. Yes. Oh, on the, off the Bonio Road. The incredible yes. steak, massive steaks for 
they're not even a sponsor. They should become a sponsor. Anyhow, get down <laughs> Off Boneo. Is it Henry Wilson right. Drive? That's or the one. Co- yeah. That's the one. But yeah. they used to they used to give you a free dozen eggs if you spent more than $50. They don't anymore because everybody's on. Since, the, since Eastlink, everybody's going there, so they don't give you the eggs anymore. <laughs> that is a good tip. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> um, okay. We have six quick questions. Carol, would you like to lead off? Nick, who do you barrack for? Cats. Why? We're the best family, Ablett. <laughs> I was going to put my black and yellow mask on that a potty sent me a few weeks ago, but I won't be annoying. Nick, what was your biggest mistake as a cadet journalist? Where do I start? Um, there's so many. It's all right. You're talking to somebody who mucked up the Muslim prayer times one day in the age. I, I have uh, had an infamous role in a pu- publishing the wrong photo of somebody on the front page of the age, but uh, I won't even, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Corrie, finest acting performance in Series 4 of The Crown. Gillian Anderson, Margaret Thatcher. Hands really? down. Really? Hands down. Oh, I thought she overacted. No, I, I think a bit like Nick was saying earlier about uh, the Irish actor who plays Donald Trump, every time she is on the screen, you cannot take your eyes off her. And can I just say, no spoiler alert because we know what happens, in the final episode when Margaret Thatcher resigns and goes to the Queen because she's being toppled by her treacherous ministers, I think it's one of the finest acting performances on a Netflix series I have seen all lockdown, and Fair that's enough. saying a lot because there's been a lot of them. Um, Caro, I'd like to ask you, what's your best scene or moment in Series Four of oh, The Crown? There are so many, but um, I particularly in, I love the scenes between Charles and Anne. I thought they were great. I love Dennis and Margaret's visit to um, Balmoral. I thought that was hysterical, even though sitting up in bed reading the rules of how you're supposed to behave must have been a bit exaggerated. <laughs> Dennis Thatcher was brilliant, but I think my favourite scene was when Andrew, Prince Andrew, was having a hissy fit about the fact that um, the Queen's decision to go against Thatcher on apartheid and um, there was a great um, episode about um, the Sunday Times and how they broke the story and the treatment of Michael Shea, the royal writer who was in the end shafted. But Andrew's spitting the dummy because it's overshadowed his wedding to Fergie and um, Charles says, well, what do you expect? You're fringe, you're fringe royal. (laughs) And now I've had two children, you're third or fourth and fifth and and they're all standing there absolutely horrified. And I won't use the word that Prince Edward uses, but that was hysterical. Has changed. Can I tell you, in the walls of Buckingham Palace, that what, tension still remains. What a miserable as we know. bunch they were. Nick, you've attended many awards nights over the journey. Have you? Um, this is. I mean, I'm. I've got one too. Have you ever disgraced yourself or embarrassed yourself? Well, I want to hear that at an awards ceremony. I think it, most of them I have quietly disgraced myself. You, it's when you wake up the next morning going, well, dear Lord. God knows, Nick, there have been a lot of them, dare I say. <laughs> yeah, well, usually you've done well, so you would have been fair enough having a drink or two. Caro, have you ever disgraced or embarrassed yourself at an awards night? Certainly. I wasn't taken out on a stretcher like one of my age colleagues many years ago. However, we used to do a segment, a good call, bad call spoof on the media at the AFMA Awards every year, and they were very popular, but people always got offended because we always had a go at each other. And, you know, the 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 more journos in paper have a go at other people, the more sensitive they tend to be. And on this particular one, we for some reason, we had a go at Beverly O'Connor's column in the Herald Sun. And I asked, someone asked Hutchie a question and he said, yes, it's the most boring, turgid um, column, blah, blah, blah. And it was all in fun. Oh, hardly. 
No one warned Beverly's us. Beverly's a lovely woman. She's lovely, and she was actually a judge that year and was invited to the awards, which we didn't know. Beverly sat there through the whole thing, and Hutchie was the one who said it, but we all laughed. Anyway, don't, don't try and pass it on. Fast like forward to four. later in the night, Beverly Sam Newman drives her home to placate her. I mean, and, and not any. I mean, he literally drove her home to try and be nice. Eddie McGuire rang me the next day and gave me an absolute shellacking because I think I was president at the time. Um, it, the whole thing was complete. We sent her flowers. We apologised. I rang Andrew Demetrio and said, "What can I do?" Because he was. AFL CEO at the time, I said, I don't know how I'm going to fix this. He said, don't worry, I paid Meatloaf half a million dollars, <laughs> which I thought was quite a good line. Anyway, um, Beverly ended up writing a column having a massive go at Hutchie and saying the whole thing was gender-based. Craig, as a result, has refused to attend a media award ever since because <laughs> it was meant something. to be... <laughs> it was meant to be all off the record and never again was good call, bad call, allowed to do a spoof. So how so just, sensitive so are all of us? So just remember that, Nick, as president of the, <laughs> as the new president of the Melbourne Press Club, the former president of the AFL Media Utter Association. Debacle. She, Utter she, debacle. She takes full responsibility for, for what her team said. I have been there. My, my partner's a playwright. Took me into, I, I hate going to the theatre myself, but took me into the theatre, saw the play mingling awkwardly afterwards and someone comes up and says, what did you think? I said, that stunk. That was terrible. There was the director of the play. <laughs> never invited again. Everyone, all these red faces, are written, never been never been invited back. Well, you must have known they must have been somehow involved. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm so glad journalistic royalty mucks up like this. Doesn't it give you confidence, Potties, when you next read your newspaper or turn on Channel 9 and see one of these faces that, in fact, there is a backstory to their greatness? How are you enjoying TV, by the way? I think it's great for impact, uh, and um, dare I say, I used to hate it, um, but I, I'm, I'm I love it now. No, it's, you it's love exciting. it. And, uh, I've seen it happens you, um, to everyone. We see each other in the makeup in the room ma- occasionally. Yeah, was, I, as, I think as a bloke, you you, you sort of say, I, I just can't. I, there's no way I'm going to. Once you're in there and you're getting pampered, you think, geez, this ain't so bad. It was booking in a haircut when I was here once. He said, <laughs> it's actually quite good this TV. Well, especially isn't during it? lockdown, while the rest of us were all showing our greys, Madam here was completely oh. channel nined up. She was just <laughs> the full hair, makeup, the whole thing. Nick, it has just been such an honour to have you on our little podcast and to listen to your stories. And we really do, we, in all sincerity, on behalf of all the listeners who have enjoyed and been moved and provoked by your stories over the years, we thank you enormously for your huge contribution to journalism already with many more years to come. So thanks heaps for coming on today to chat. It's been great to have you. It's been my pleasure. And if you do like good journalism, subscribe to The Age. Keep us yes. keep us alive. I agree with that. And thank you to all our podcast supporters. Click for Vic Prince Wine Store. You'll find the links to them in our show notes and on our social media channels. And then you can support the people who support the podcast. And of course, our great supporters are you, the listeners. We love your feedback and your comments. Good, bad, um, wonderful praising us having a crack at us we don't mind but you can send us a message through the facebook page or on instagram which is at don't shoot pod or twitter or you can email email us feedback at don't shoot pod and if you'd like to be involved with our podcast as a sponsor just let miss jane know and um, we can organize something that would be great to have you on board caro thanks for your company thanks again nick congrats nick you're a star and what do we say don't shoot the messenger
Thanks for listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. This episode has been proudly supported by Prince Wine Store. Prince Wine Store bring wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world and they deliver Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au and enter the promo code MESS, as in messenger, at the checkout to receive a special Don't Shoot the Messenger listener discount.